few weeks back in the book of Numbers, uh, I began with a pop quiz. I, I described the characteristics of a certain generation, and then I asked you, what generation am I describing? And it was a surprise, it wasn't millennials. It was the baby boomers. Now, this morning I'm gonna give you another pop quiz, but this time it's about a certain group of Christians. This group of Christians feel increasingly on the margins of their culture and their society. This group of Christians are pushed out from the spheres of influence, and as they live in the world, they feel this mounting pressure to conform, to blend in, to swear allegiance to the current narratives and lifestyles that their culture upholds. As this group of Christians seeks to live in the world, they are finding more and more that they just don't quite fit in anywhere in the world. And in part, that's because that the people surrounding these Christians increasingly mock them and berate them. They say that they are too exclusive, that they are too rigid, rigid that they are bigoted, that they are self-righteous, that they are condescending. The world around these Christians is starting not just to tolerate them, they're starting to see this group of Christians as a threat. A threat to their way of life, an enemy of progress, and an enemy to modern beliefs. So let me give you a pop quiz. What group of Christians am I describing? You're right, it's the Christians in first century Asia Minor which is modern-day Turkey. This is the group of Christians to whom the Apostle Peter writes his letter. And the description of their situation is meant to get your attention, right? Because increasingly, it describes our situation as Christians living in America. Now, I don't want to be doom and gloom. I think America is still a very unique place for Christians. Uh, we have a rich Christian history. We gather freely, and many, many Christians gather in big, impressive buildings. And in plenty parts of the country, the church is still respected, and for people, the church is often still expected. But I do think cultural elites and cultural influencers have recognized a shift. And they would have us Christians respond in a certain way. Some of us would have us respond by capitulating, by giving up. They inundate our entertainment in order to normalize their narratives and their lifestyles. And then they pressure us to modernize our beliefs. Now others recognize the shifts and then they tell us to respond by fighting, to get angry to take back the culture and the country that should be ours. Peter recognizes the shift, and he charts for us a third path. It's the path of reality, that Christians in any place and at any time will suffer. That Christians live in a hard world, and we live in a harsh world that we can't expect to be treated any better than our Lord and Savior was treated as he was in the world. It's the path of reality, but it's also the path of hope. Hope that begins with God 
the one who reigns, the one who redeems, the one who rescues sinners from the world, and then the one who empowers them as citizens of his kingdom in the world, and the one who prepares his people and brings them to a new world. So friends, come with me as we begin this path of God-centered, real, sturdy hope and joy. If you're not there yet, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. If you are new to the Bible, this is in the New Testament. Uh, if you're looking at the Bibles provided, you can find it on page 1014. Um, and we just follow along as I read. After I'm done reading, I will say, uh, this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you say, thanks, thanks, thanks be to God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. The more I read this passage, the more I thought that it's like Sour Patch Kids. And if you want the adult version of that, maybe it's like Icy Hot, that it starts off cool and then there's good food. But Sour Patch Kids, those sour gummies, their tagline is first they're sour and then they're sweet. And not only is sweetness the prevailing taste of Sour Patch Kids, but the sour makes the sweet taste sweeter because of the contrast. And that dynamic is at work here in 1 Peter 1. The sweetness of salvation prevails over and is magnified by the sourness suffering. We'll see this play out in three ways. A sweeter identity, a sweeter hope, and a sweeter perspective. First, a sweeter identity. Like most letters in the New Testament, this one begins with details about who's sending it, who he's sending it to, and he gives them a little greeting. Now, these sections to me feel like a birthday card that you get with a birthday and if you're like me, I would just, I just go for the gift. I don't really care about the card. But there's always someone at the party saying, hey, no, there's a card with that. You've got to make sure you open it. You've got to open it first. Well, I guess you never know what might be in there. So let's open the card and look at verses 1 and 2. First, we see Peter describes himself 
briefly, but significantly. Now, the earliest copies we have of 1 Peter contain this claim in the very beginning of the letter, that Peter himself wrote it. And later on in the letter, Peter describes himself as an eyewitness of Jesus' suffering. And at the end of the letter, Peter says he's writing from Babylon. Now, this was a symbolic way to refer to Rome, which began to oppose God's people as the city of Babylon opposed God's people in the Old Testament. But here in the beginning, Peter says that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a significant title. For one, it's significant because Peter wasn't always an apostle. Jesus had kept his promise. He took this Galilean fisherman and made him a fisher of men. But the title is significant, too, because apostle is a unique office. It means sent one. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, apostles are seen as those who are personally commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus. So from the start, Peter's flagging for us that this is not a letter of mere human opinion and human insight. No, this comes from a person who is personally sent by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. These words carry well, then Peter describes the recipients, and as is often the case in the New Testament, especially the letters, the senders of these letters front load the themes that they'll write about. So from the start, Peter establishes the importance of the theme of identity. Who are these people? He calls them elect. That's the first word that he uses. Another way to put that is that they are chosen. Well, chosen by whom? We see in verse 2, a little later on, will tell us they are chosen by God the Father. More on that in a minute. We can keep going in verse 1. Who is he writing to? He is writing to elect exiles. An exile is someone who is forced from their home and now lives in a different place. And the order of those words is important. They're not elect because they're exiles. It's not that God sees how radical their faith is, and then he chooses them. No, they are exiles because they're elect. God has chosen them out of the world, and now they live in the world as exiles. Peter says he is writing to elect exiles of the dispersion. The word is diaspora. They have been scattered throughout the world. We've read about this in the book of Acts. The persecution of Christians leads to the spreading out of Christians. But more than that being a sad thing, God bends that evil for good, and he uses that to advance his gospel to the ends of the earth, even to places like these where they reside, places which, is, which are in now modern-day Turkey, which was known then as Asia Minor. Now, scholars of 1 Peter observe that the regions that Peter lists would actually be in a circle so that if he's writing from Rome, the person who carries this letter would visit each one of these regions, like kind of in a circle, and then make his way back to Rome. So first Pontus, then Galatia, then Cappadocia, then Asia, then Bithynia. Who is Peter writing to? He presses a little bit further into their identity. In verse 2, he describes their election. Why were they chosen? Is it because that they set their love on God? No, it's because God first set his love on them. God foreknew them. That term, no, isn't always just to refer to head knowledge when it's used in the Bible. 
That term, know, to know, is often used to refer to the bond of love in a covenant relationship. So God knew them and loved them before they knew and loved God. Peter is emphasizing your election is the Father's initiative. And then he continues, the Spirit applies the Father's initiative to them. They are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. So how did the Father bring the ones he has chosen to himself? He did it through the Spirit. We can ask it differently, maybe a little bit more real. Christian, how did you come to God? Well, it's because the Father chose you and the Spirit sanctified you. The word sanctified is a very churchy word. We might use it all the time, but just not know what it means. It simply means set apart. And there are different aspects of sanctification, of being set apart. The Spirit sets you apart for God over time as he makes you more like Jesus. But the Spirit sets you apart for the first time when you believe in Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, what is the result of the Father choosing them and the Spirit setting them apart? Well, now they live lives of obedience to Christ and they are cleansed from their sins by his blood. My friend, if you're not a Christian, right here, the Bible holds out for you the prospect of a new life. And it comes not as a result of your effort, but as a result of God's grace. And it begins not just with a casual acceptance of certain truths. No, it begins with submitting your heart and your life in obedience and faith to the one who loves you and gave himself up for you. Christian, these verses at the beginning of verse Peter, this little birthday card, should remind you that your identity is so much deeper than you realize. It should remind you, Christian, that you are not a product of chance. You are a product of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together to accomplish and to plan and to apply your salvation. You are chosen by God through the Spirit, in Christ as part of the new covenant. It's another little detail in these opening verses. These terms like elect and exiles and dispersion and sprinkled with blood, all of these terms are from the Old Testament. It's like Peter's using them to indicate that God has done something new. He's writing to mainly Gentiles that God has broadened out his salvation to extend to all the ends of the earth. And this has been his plan from the beginning. So at, here at the start of Peter's letter, Peter shows them something sweeter. They might be tasting the sourness of exile. The world has discarded them. They are cast aside as strange and repressive. But the sweetness of election, belonging to God, prevails over that sourness. That God chose them, that God loves them, that God has set them apart, that God has cleansed them, that God has made them new. So my fellow Christian, when you think about who you are, what is the prevailing taste? Is it sour or is it sweet? Who are you? Biblical counselor David Paulison writes this, who are you really? What defines you? 
You're not defined by your role in your family, whether you are married or unmarried, whether you have children or whether you don't. You're not defined by your job or your money. You're not defined by your friendships. You're not defined by your ethnic background, by your sexual desires. If you were defined by those things, well, then you'd be cursed if you had to retire and stop You'd be a wreck if your best friend betrayed you. You'd be in despair if your ethnic background was despised and mocked. No, instead, you are defined by your relationship with the living God. That is such a sweeter identity that the world can give you or that you can give yourself. Well, they've read the greeting card. Let's open the gift. Peter begins the body of his letter in verse 3. As they begin to unwrap the gift, verses 3 to 5 show them a sweeter hope. A sweeter hope. I love how Peter starts. I think it's instructive to us. Remember, he's writing to suffering people, and this is how he starts. I think it's, it instructs especially people like me who are just perpetually glass-half-empty kind of guys. Peter will acknowledge the hard stuff in their lives. He, he won't dismiss it. He won't skirt around it. Peter is just too amazed and too in awe of God to start with that. There is more important news that should grab the headline, that God is merciful, that God has saved you, that God is keeping you, that God is bringing you home. I remember John Stott writing something like this. He says, the early Christians weren't so busy saying, look at what the world has come to. The early Christians were busy saying, look at the one who has come into the world. I wonder which one do you emphasize? Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Now here's some guidance for reading the Bible. Pay attention to what the authors emphasize, to what they stress, to what they harp on and mark out as important. Peter emphasizes that praise and blessing belong to God. He's about to describe the hope and salvation that they have, but he makes an important clarification from the very start. He tells them why they have this hope and salvation. It's not because of that their good outweighs their bad. It's not because God looked down on them and saw that they were decent, hardworking people. They have hope and salvation. From the start, Peter clarifies, you have this. God is merciful. That's why. My friend, hope and salvation, these things won't make sense to you until you understand that in order for you to be saved, God must have mercy on you. It reminds me of Luke 18, Jesus' parable. It's probably familiar to you if you remember it, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee looks at the tax collector in the temple and he prays, God, thank you. I'm not like that guy. I do all these good things. I'm not the problem in the world. It's people like that him are the problem in the world. And then the tax collector doesn't have time to look at the Pharisee. He's just too busy addressing his own sin. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And some people would, would have you think that in the world, the two kinds of people are good people and bad people. That's not the distinction in the world. The two kinds of people in the world is that there are sinners who don't think they need mercy, and that there are 
sinners All praise and blessing belongs to God because he is merciful. As you keep going through uh, verses 3 through 5, we see that all praise and blessing belongs to God because at every step of our salvation, from beginning to end, it's God's accomplishment, not ours. So look at verse 3. Peter says, he caused you to be born again. Now, is, this isn't tough to understand if you think of physical birth. Even what I've witnessed of my wife's pregnancy so far drives this home. That when our son is born, he will not be able to say, this was my achievement. Look at what I have done. If our son ever says that, I will put him in his place. But the same works for our new birth. It is God's accomplishment, not ours. Verse 3 continues. They have a living hope, not through their own efforts, but through the resurrection of Jesus, that their inheritance in heaven isn't earned by them or kept by them. God does it. The sweeter hope is that God is merciful from beginning to end. He is the one who saved us. Now, let's just break this down a little bit more. Look again at verses 3 to 5, and I'm going to turn off the TV so you stop looking at them. <laughs> Peter breaks down our hope and salvation, how it extends to our past, into our future, into our present. First, our past. He says we have been born again. This harkens back to what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You see, Nicodemus, if you remember, he's a successful man. He's a respectable man. He's an intellectual man. He's a spiritual man. He comes from a good heritage. But Jesus tells Nicodemus, hey, Nick, if you're going to be brought into God's kingdom, if you're going to be saved, it's not something that you receive automatically. Even the best of people like you need to be made new. Because even the best of people, all of us, are born with a bent toward independence. What does Isaiah 53 verse 6 say? That all we like sheep have gone astray each one of us to our own way. But God is merciful. He seeks out those independent, straying sheep and gives them new hearts, new desires, and a new direction. My friend, does your past haunt you? Do flashbacks of what you've done just appear to you when you least expect it? Remember how Isaiah 53 Verse 6 ends. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Those who trust in Christ are free and forgiven of their past, and they are made new. Well, Peter talks about how our hope and salvation extend to our future. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. With a new birth, we now have a new birthright, or a new inheritance. So before your new birth, you were set to receive, your, your inheritance that you were set to receive was death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin, what you were owed is death. 
But with a new birth comes a new birthright, a new inheritance. Romans 6.23, how does it end? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this reminds me a little bit of the story of Jacob and Esau. We're talking about birthrights. That's the center, centerpiece of the tension between them. Remember the story from the book of Genesis. Jacob and Esau are twins. Esau's older, Jacob's younger. Esau's manly, Jacob seems to be kind of effeminate, right? But Esau's birthright is the better inheritance because he's older. And so their dad, Isaac, uh, makes this arrangement with Esau. Isaac's old, he's blind, he's nearing his death. He tells his son Esau, who's his favorite, he says, go get me some fresh meat, I'll give you your inheritance. Jacob hears this, and he finds an animal on their property, brings it to the, his dad. But how does Jacob convince Isaac, his father, so that he can receive his brother's good inheritance? What does Jacob do? Remember, he clothes himself in goat skin. Now, a side note, I have never met a man who is that hairy. Um, but the point nonetheless, this is how Jacob receives better inheritance from his father because he was clothed like his brother. The point is this. The only way you and I will receive the birthright of heaven is if we are clothed in Jesus's sacrificial death and his perfect life. It's Jesus's birthright, not ours. But the good news is that Jesus freely gives his robes to those who will turn from their sin and trust in him, and now they get to share in his inheritance. So when you stand before your father, you stand clothed in Christ, your Lord and your elder brother, and you are co-heirs with him. Because of him, the hope of our, inherit of our inheritance is alive, it's living. It's not wishful thinking, it's not dead, because Jesus isn't dead. It will never spoil, it will never stain, it will never depreciate in value. Peter says the Father is waiting to give it to us. Now as we started, I'm, I'm sure many of you have, have recognized the same shifts in our culture. And maybe you're concerned about that. Maybe you're concerned about where our country's going. You're concerned about the state of the church in America. And what will happen to the church? You're saddened. That's natural to be. Let me ask you, though. This 1 Peter 1, 4, look at that verse. Does that verse tell you to long for the glory days of old? Or does that verse tell you to long for the glory days of your future? Well, Peter also talks about how our hope extends to our present. Verse 4, at the end of it, he says, Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So yeah, they don't have their inheritance yet. They must trust God enough to go forward. But even their perseverance, even their continuing to believe is not their achievement. What does Peter say? He says, God's power guards your faith. So let me just make this real street level Christian. If you woke up today and you still believe in Jesus, that is because of God's power. That is his accomplishment. He is the source of your perseverance. 
He will bring you to the final day, the day when Jesus judges the world in righteousness, and he will deliver you from that day because he has already satisfied his judgment for you by pouring out your sin on Jesus on the cross. Here is our sweet hope. God is merciful. He has saved us from, his, from our past. He is guarding us in the present, and he will bring us home to the future. This is how Peter leads, talking to Christians who are suffering. He starts with this. This is the headline that should grab their attention. The Welsh pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, says that there are two types of Christians. He says that there are Christians who decide to take up Christianity. He says that uh, these are people who, it feels like Christianity is just something I should do. Uh, it, it makes sense to me, it, it gives me good morals, it gives me a positive influence for my kids. There, there are Christians who, who take up Christianity. And then there are Christians who are taken up by Christianity. God in his mercy has landed on them in such a way that they well up with praise and joy. My brother and sister, what type of Christian are you? One just said, taken up Christianity, or taken up by Christianity. Let me ask you, you read 1 Peter 1, Peter 5, what brand of Christianity does that, those verses describe? Do they describe this tepid, nice hobby of Christianity? Or is this the multiplied and overflowing and abundant grace and peace that Peter says in verse 2? Well, the gift keeps giving. We've seen the sweeter identity, the sweeter hope, and lastly, the sweeter perspective. We're looking now at verses 6 through 9. In these verses, the sweetness of salvation prevails over the sourness of trials and the sourness of waiting. Look first at the sourness of trials. Verse 6 begins, In this you rejoice. This likely refers to all of that's come before in verses 3 through 5. God's mercy to give them a living hope. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There is so much in this verse. I want to make sure you notice some things. Did you notice that how trials are put into perspective with that phrase, for a little while? What is 70 years compared to 70 Did you notice that trials are part of the plan? Look at that phrase, if necessary. Trials are not painless, but neither are trials pointless. They are part of God's plan to prepare us. Charles Spurgeon observes that a ship will not make it to harbor on calm seas. There must be wind that drives forward to the shore. I wonder if remembering this would readjust your expectations for the Christian life. You know, earlier on in our worship, we did not sing, if trials come, we sang, when trials come. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. And we have no need to fear. Verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 6, did you notice that in the same sentence, in the same sentence, Peter says that Christians both rejoice and they grieve. Did you notice that? That they rejoice and they grieve. Now, this kind of rejoicing that Peter has in mind is not naive. 
It's not fake. It's not manufactured. Now, let me just get concrete for a moment that this means that when you walk into this building, when you go to community group on Wednesday, when you meet up with a friend from here later on in the week, you don't have to put on a happy, smiley face. That is not the type of joy, this grin and bear it joy that Peter is talking about here. We rejoice and we grieve. Peter doesn't dismiss the grief. He acknowledges it. He feels it for them. You know, everyone here this morning coming into this room, I'm sure is going through some type of grieving, right? Some type of suffering. Well, they just might be polite and they, they smile at you because they're kind. Even, even myself, myself and my wife, some of you know, our house was broken into this week. No one was hurt, nothing was stolen, but I had to confront the guy. And we're grateful that the Lord spared us from what could have been so much worse. But it was not a painless experience. Everybody is going through something. Even the guy who's preaching is going through something. You know, I think sometimes we treat our trials like a competition. That we suddenly think that, oh, I'm not going through as hard of a thing as that person, so I can't say anything. Or the reverse. We kind of give the impression that, you're not going through as hard of a thing that I'm going through. So don't you dare say, Sarah, say anything. West Street, can we just settle the score and stop treating it like a competition? I understand that considering others may keep ourselves from wallowing in self-pity, but it shouldn't keep us from sharing honestly and being gracious. Everyone is going through something. Let's just settle it. Let's just be there. Let's be honest. Did you catch the word various in verse 6? I bet each person here has got something else going on. But even as there's power in being honest about grief, we grieve and we rejoice. We are not morbid. We are not morose. In verse 6, rejoicing is the prevailing taste. Suffering happens, but it doesn't take away our joy. That's what makes Christians unique, I think. I mean, think about it. Think about our moment in time right now, our culture. Every single day, every single hour, everyone is panicked and angry and freaking out about everything. How much, would, how much of a witness would it be if Christians are humbly confident and humbly joyful? So just to apply it to myself, yeah, I'm affected by what happened to us this week. It was not painless, but neither was it pointless. God has powerfully reminded me that I have something so much better than physical safety. That I am purchased by God through the blood of his son and I am eternally secure. Both me and my wife are eternally secure. And having that perspective on your trials, on your sufferings, comes in part from knowing the purpose of those trials. And look at verse 7. Why is it necessary that we are grieved by various trials? Well, verse 7 says that it's necessary so that our faith is proven and our faith is purified. Now, notice in that alliteration, I did not include so that we are punished. Knowing these purposes keeps us from hurtfully misapplying our theology of suffering so many Christians do. 
<coughs> saying that we, you, this happened because you don't have enough faith, saying that this happened because of sin in your life. Maybe, but my friend, that is not the only purpose of trials. That's not what's described here. Peter compares his purpose to gold. He compares and contrasts it. Uh, he says, if you want to find out if something's gold, you put it in the fire and see how quickly it melts. Gold is among the most durable of metals. It doesn't melt easily. Neither will true faith sustained by God. But as gold goes through the fire, its dross is burned away. So as faith goes through the fire of trials, our unbelief is burned away. Because in the fire, we stop trusting so much in our circumstances. In the fire, we stop treating God like a vending machine. Just give me what I want. Instead, in the fire, we say, God, give me you. In the fire, we stop relying so much on ourselves. And in the fire, God proves to us supremely good and trustworthy. And in this way, Peter says our faith is more precious than because you know what? When gold goes through the fire, it decreases. But when faith goes through the fire, it increases. He says, trials produce a faith that is praiseworthy. And if you look closely, notice it's our faith that gets the praise and honor and glory when Jesus returns. It's our faith. So what Peter's saying is that as we share in Christ's sufferings, and is an inheritance, so also we will share in his glory when he returns. But at the same time, we can layer it a little bit, because remember verse 5, who gets the credit for our faith? Whose power guards our faith? Well, it's God. So the message is this. Christian, trust God in the fire because he is making you radiant. By sustaining you in the fire, God shows off. He shows off how much he can get his people through. He shows off how much better he is than the world's fleeting pleasures and goods. So you might have heard it said that, uh, that God saves his hardest battles for his strongest people. Have, have you heard, have you seen like a Facebook post like that before? I think 1 Peter 1.7 communicates something better. That God produces his strongest people through the hardest battles. The sweetness of salvation prevails over the sourness of trials. And the sweetness of salvation prevails over the sourness of waiting. This is verses 8 and 9 in 1 Peter 1. You see, the Christians in Asia Minor rejoice despite their trials, and they rejoice despite not having seen Jesus and still not seeing Jesus. Peter describes what's a little bit like a long-distance relationship. No analogy is perfect. This breaks down eventually, just bear with me. If you are in a long-distance relationship, if you are far apart and don't see each other face-to-face, -face, well, you still love that person, and you hang on to their every word, because that's all you've got. And you long to see them, and you rejoice that you are still together, even though you don't see them. Now, I wonder if, as Peter writes verse 8, if he's remembering the scene of the upper room when Jesus is with Thomas and Thomas demands to see and to touch the risen Christ. And I wonder if Peter sees in these Christians Jesus' own words come to fruition. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. 
This will resonate for you Clevelanders here in the room because we are used to cloudy, overcast days like this one. A while back, someone made a satirical tourist video for the city of Cleveland, and it included the line, come on down to Cleveland town, everyone, where we see the sun three times a year. <laughs> but you notice, Clevelanders, that the sun is still there, even when you don't see it. Even when the clouds would cover it. How do you know the sun is still there? Right now. It's still light out, and you still feel it's warm. It's warmer than it is at night. Friends, one day, one day, the clouds will part, and we will see the Son of God. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. Yet even while we wait, the sun warms us, and enlightens our path. Even while we wait, we enjoy our salvation, and one day we will experience it in full. There will be no more sin, there will be no more distance between us and the lover of our soul. We said earlier that there are two types of Christians, those who take up Christianity and those who are taken up by Christianity. We could put it in a different way. There are Christians who know about Jesus, and there are Christians who know Jesus. Peter describes it like this. You love Jesus. You love Jesus. I wonder, again, if Peter has in mind an encounter he had with the risen Christ. After Peter denied him, they're sitting on a beach, they're eating breakfast. What does our Lord ask Peter? Three times. Peter, do you do you talk to God like that? Do you, I, I love you, God. Christian, do you love Jesus? That's a striking way to put it. Maybe it makes you uncomfortable. Maybe it's awkward. But would you be okay saying that to somebody? Saying to somebody, even that here, even, even a non-Christian friend, you're going to sound really weird. Would you say, I love Jesus? Not just that I trust Jesus, not just that Jesus makes sense, but I love Jesus? There's a homework assignment. You want to live life on the edge? Why don't you tell someone this week that I love Jesus? <laughs> Christian, is Jesus your boast? Are you proud of him? Are you proud to speak well of your Savior? Who cares about a temporary awkward moment when we have a living hope that is permanently ours? Would you desire to be close to him? Delight him? Wake up every morning longing to seek him in the scriptures. Hang on to his every word. That's what we have. Seek to obey him in real, tangible ways. You want to show how you love Jesus? What is Jesus saying? Who are those who love me? Those who listen to my words and obey my words. Rejoice in who Jesus is. Rejoice in what he's done and rejoice in what he will do. Brothers and sisters, right now, there is so much that is sour in our world. We suffer and we wait. But sour doesn't have to be the prevailing taste. You, right now, can taste and see that the Lord is good, and that his steadfast love endures forever.